Good morning, Grace. Hey, before we get started this morning, I just want to uh, just really quickly thank you all for just your amazing generosity. If you were here last Sunday, you know we uh, said goodbye to our summer directors who helped out with our students this uh, summer, uh, Bea Quintero and then Eric McNeely. And Eric, as you know, it was heading back to Rhode Island where he was from. And one of the things we just thrown out there is he'd driven down here at his own expense and then he was driving back. He'd taken time off work and arranged it with his boss to be able to be here with us for the summer. And so we wanted to compensate him or help him with his travel expenses both there and back hopefully. And so I just asked you all if you just participate real quickly at the end of the service in blessing him. Well, you guys gave him over $1,700 to help him out with that. And he was just blown away. So just truly appreciate the generosity of, of uh, this church and how you guys continue to do that in so many ways and, and left a really an indelible mark on Eric's heart uh, as he spent the summer here just being around you and being around your kids. So I really appreciate that. Uh, as we jump into our series today, we're in a series called Timeline, and we've been going through the book of Daniel, chapter 9 in particular, really looking at what's kind of a backbone prophecy uh, for a lot of the prophecies in all the Bible. Uh, the, most scholars will say that Daniel chapter 9 is one of the key prophecies in the Old Testament because it, it kind of lays out a, a 40,000 foot view of some issues or key events that are going to happen in God's plan and a lot of other prophecies kind of fit within this. So it's a very important one to understand in terms of getting the big picture and we've been doing that as we've taken several weeks to walk through this. Next week, the next couple weeks, we'll take a look at a key passage in the New Testament, the Olivet Discourse, where Jesus uh, expounds on these, this prophecy a little bit more and fleshes out some more details in particular. So as we jump in, if you're new with us today, I'm going to give you a little background real briefly. If you're not, you're going to hear it again. It's important we understand the context in which this prophecy was written and, and why it was given. And we looked at some of its purposes last week. Today, last week we looked at the what. Uh, what did God give it for? What was his purpose in giving prophecy in general? And then today we're going to look at the when. When are these things going to happen? And so uh, you got a, a beautiful little chart this week. Don't you like that? Doesn't that? Some of you people get really excited when they get charts and, and charts about the end times and filling in blanks and, and puzzles. So I, this is the first time I think I've ever done a chart. I've let my school, the school I went to is known for charts about the end times. They love that kind of stuff. Uh, they probably disowned me up until this point. I think I'm back in the club now because I'm finally doing a chart for you. But So I took a lot of time with Clarissa. We were spending hours putting this together. I'm trying to do it in a way that's very simple and understandable. And as it comes up, you're going to see each little blank will be colored uh, as you go. So you should have an easy time following through it. But uh, I just want to give you a big overview of, of this passage. And visually, I think it's easier to understand than just reading the words itself. It can be a little challenging just reading it until you break it down little by little. So if you're visual, you're going to like this today. Let's pray, and we'll jump in. If you have a Bible with you, we're going to be in Daniel chapter 9. Someone, I don't have the page number up here. If you don't have a Bible, I want to encourage you to grab one 
and follow along. And there's some Bibles in the chairs in front of you. I think this passage is on 747 in those chair Bibles. It'll be easier for you if you have the verse open as well as see it up here on the screen so you can uh, see the whole passage in one shot. But we're going to try to take this and break it down little by little and walk through it so we can see clearly what this passage is saying and what it's not saying. Let's pray, and we'll jump in. I'll give you a little bit of background as we uh, read the verses. Father, uh, we're just grateful and thankful that we have the privilege to open up your word and to read uh, words that were penned several thousand years ago. Lord, we couldn't go into a library, we couldn't go into a museum, and even come close to a document or a book that has that kind of history. And yet, this book that has more history and is more ancient than the majority of the things we find in museums, you have preserved and it's been multiplied throughout the world. So Lord, I I just pray, first of all, we're thankful and grateful for what we hold in our hands. And Lord, as we look at these truths, just as you said to Daniel through the angel Gabriel, you are being revealed about these truths because you are greatly loved, Daniel. I believe the same is true for us today, that you have preserved your word and you have kept it throughout ages, throughout wars, throughout persecutions, throughout times when people have tried to destroy it, but you have preserved it because of your great love for your people. So Lord, help us see that in these truths. And I pray that your Holy Spirit would give us understanding and humility as we approach these texts to not say more than what they say and not believe less than what they say. We ask these things in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Daniel chapter 9. Quick snapshot, Daniel in Israel is in exile in this time, meaning they've been removed from Israel, their land, and they've been exiled uh, at first to Babylon, uh, and then the Babylonian Empire was conquered by the Medes and the Persians, and so now the Medes and Persians are ruling, and, and Cyrus is the leader at this particular time. So Daniel, the prophet, has had a pretty difficult life. Most likely what can happen, you can read about this uh, in the Bible in 2 Kings chapter 24 and 25. You can get to the end of 2 Chronicles, which kind of mirrors the kings only from a theological perspective as opposed to just a historical one. They tell about what kind of things happened in these sieges and these wars. But history also tells us of how these ancient Near Eastern countries uh, treated each other when they sieged them. And it was not pretty. Worse than many of the terrorist acts that you see today. People being impaled. If you don't know what it means to be impaled or impaled, you, you probably don't want to see a picture of it. But basically just, well, I won't even describe it. It's just nasty. Google it. It was, it was not fun stuff. And yet Daniel saw that happen. He was a teenage boy. If you go to Daniel 1.1, when the Israelites were exiled, he was taken out with the first deportation in 605. Probably saw his parents slaughtered before his eyes because it was typical of nations at this time. They'd come in, lay siege to a city, and they were going to take all the important people, the smart people, the rich people, the skilled people, they were going to take them back to their own land 
so that the, what was left there couldn't hardly even exist or ever get strong again. So they're going to take all them back. They usually would kill a lot of the old people or just leave them because they couldn't make the physical journey back. It would have slowed down the whole group as they were going back. So Daniel's parents were probably in that group, probably got killed. Daniel was taken as a teenager. After witnessing that, bound, taken to this new nation, taught a new language, taught a new culture, forced uh, into a new religion, even though he withheld that and we resisted that. And then he was forced to serve the very leaders who were responsible for wiping out his family. Pretty rough life. And what's amazing about Daniel is unlike many of us and unlike many Christians today, Daniel wasn't sitting there ripping his government leaders, wasn't slamming all the stuff that was going on in his country. He worked tirelessly and faithfully for the very people who had destroyed his nation and his family, never once compromising his values and his faith, yet always working for the good of the nation in which he was in. That's what Jeremiah had actually prophesied to the Israelite people, and they rebelled against it. They said, when you are taken into Babylon, you work for the good of that city, because their good will be your good. We could learn a lot from Daniel. Imagine what school systems would be like if we spent less time shredding up our leaders and more time faithfully serving the students and ministering to those right there. Imagine what our city could be like if we spent less time tearing down leaders that we didn't agree with and more time pouring our time into making our city the best city we can in spite of the leadership. Imagine what our nation would be like if we were a people like Daniel that saw the bigger picture, that regardless of who's in leadership, as Daniel learned, God puts kings in place and he takes them out. We don't have to freak out about who's there. We have to worry about one person, that's us living faithfully in whatever kind of nation we're in and allow God to work out the big picture. That's where Daniel's at. He's received several visions about the future of nations, Gentile nations ruling in the world at that time. And in chapter 9, he's heartbroken. The end of chapter 8, he's almost sick. He's going, God, what is left for us, Israel, your people, whom you've promised a future for, and all you've revealed to me is how Gentile, non-Jewish people are going to rule the world from time and time and time just keeps going? And he calls out and, according to what he sees in God's word and says, what's going to happen? You said you're going to restore us. When are you going to do that? And God answers him with this prophecy. Daniel's looking at the prophecy of 70 years. They'd be physically in exile. When God comes back to answer, he says, it's not just 70 years, Daniel. It's 70 groups of 70 years or 70 groups of seven years. And he gives them a picture of not just returning them at that moment to the land, but a greater picture of his plan for Israel and his people throughout time. And that's what we're looking at today. Uh, as we looked at uh, last week, this is a period that's cut out of time and designated for the Israelite people. Hey, it would be similar to, uh, uh, say, you're uh, uh, an athlete and your coach says, hey, we got 11 games this season that are carved out for our games. doesn't mean they're all back-to-back -back just like this. You could have a whole week of practice in between. But within that long season, there are 11 times that are carved out of that 
for this purpose of the game. God's kind of said the same thing. These are years that are specifically carved out for my people, and he's not even telling them they're all going to be consecutive. There could be gaps in between just like there's gaps in between games, and we're going to see that. And so let's read what the passage says and try to put these pieces together as God reveals these things to it. And here's two things that I want you to see big picture in our passage today. The first thing is what the Bible actually says here about this. This is going to be more of a teaching and understanding time because Gabriel said to, to Daniel right here at the beginning, he says, Know, therefore, and understand, meaning contemplate. Make sure you know what I'm talking about in this passage, Daniel. So that's what I want to do for you guys today. Let's make sure we know what this passage is saying, what it means for us, and what it means in general. Not what we want it to mean, but what God intended it to mean. And then secondly, we're going to ask why or so what. So what's the big deal about knowing this? So those are the two things, and we're going to fill it in in this little cool chart that you got in front of you, all right? Just tell me. You'll make my day if you say, man, Chad, that was really a cool chart you, you, you made for us today, okay? Here we go, verse 25. It says, Know, therefore, and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one, a prince, there shall be seven weeks. Then for 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Okay, so... so Here's our first verse. A couple of things we've got to put together here and a couple of things we have to understand about an English translation. One of the challenges with an English translation, like you translate anything in languages, is the Hebrew language didn't have the same kind of punctuation that we have, nor did the Greek language. So translators guess where periods go. And oftentimes they just put a period just to break up a long sentence. It wasn't that uncommon. Like in Paul's writings in Ephesians, the whole first chapter of Ephesians is almost one sentence. We break it up in the English because it's just too much. Hebrew writers are the same. There really shouldn't be a period in this verse. Okay, it should be one sentence. I'm going to show you uh, how you the, the best read it as we go through it. But let me take you to the chart here real quick and kind of give you an overview of what we're talking about. Okay, so we're going to put these uh, 70 weeks that Daniel talks about. Remember we learned last week that the term week is an unfortunate translation as well. It's really the word seven in the Hebrew language. So it's 77s, kind of like we would use a dozen nowadays. You have to understand the context to say, what is it a dozen of? If I send you to the donut shop and say, hey, grab me a dozen, what's it going to be? A dozen donuts. If I send you to the taco shop and say, get me a dozen, you're not going to get me a dozen donuts, right? You're going to get me a dozen tacos. So a dozen is dependent on the context. In this case, Daniel's talking about years, and so when God responds to him and saying, it's not just 70 years you're going to be in exile, I have a plan for Israel that's 77s, 77s of years, which comes out to be 490 total years, and then he's going to break it up in this passage. So this is kind of a big picture, and we're going to see that they're not all consecutive. So let me show you the big picture, and then we'll put the pieces together. On the left, I put the 70-year captivity where Daniel is right now. He's right towards the end of that, about year 66 of the 70-year uh, captivity. Here's some verses that tell you about that, Daniel 1 
31 that they were exiled. He was taken out in 605 B.C. Jeremiah 25 is the prophecy. They'd be there for 70 years. And Ezra 1 tells us about the decree of Cyrus as well as the last chapter of 2 Chronicles. And we'll see how that fits together. So now the two solid arrows next to it are looking at the period we're looking at now. The first seven weeks and the second 62 weeks or sets of years. So it's 49 years or 434 years. And then we're going to see the final week, the 70th week, that I believe fits down over there. And, and the dotted line there is just a period in between. Because God never says in this statement that they have to be back-to-back. It's kind of like the coach that says you got 11 games that are carved out for you. You don't go, man, we got to play 11 games back-to-back. No, you're going to have a week in between each one of them. He's just telling you this is the period in which we're going to do something very specific. We're going to have a game. It also is very consistent with how God often spoke through his prophets. Uh, Scholars often call it what we call telescoping, meaning a prophet may speak of the future and use kind of a telescopic view where he's telling you what's going to happen in the future. And when God does that, if it's a distance away, you could put events that are separated by a large gap, but when the prophet prophesies them, he just stacks them right next to each other. Here's a simple visual picture. If you ever see on a clear day, if you're up on a, a hill in Laredo, if you look to the southwest, you ever seen the mountains in Monterey? Okay, if you've seen the mountains and you've seen the edges of them, they're all like right next to each other when you look from this distance. But if you've ever driven there and gone through the mountains, you realize you come to one peak and then you can go down and you can drive many, many miles before you come to the next peak. When you're looking at them from a distance, they all look like they're right next to each other. When you actually get there, they're separated by a large distance. Same thing happens with prophecies in the Old Testament. God will stack events that are long ways away. He just puts them together saying these are all going to happen, but he's not necessarily saying they're going to happen back to back to back. This is a perfect example of that. There's a gap between that, and we're going to see in the verse why that's very obvious if you read the passage for as it is. So there's big picture. So we're going to start in verse 25 now. So these, your blanks are going to pop up. So if you go to the next slide, you'll see that Daniel 9.25a addresses that first little arrow, the 49 years or the seven weeks. And it says right here, it says, Know therefore and understand that from the going out of the word to restore and build Jerusalem to the coming of an anointed one. So it's looking at that full period there of those two sets of weeks or two sets of years to the coming of the anointed one or Jesus. There'll be seven weeks and then 62 weeks. It says there'll be seven weeks and then for a, uh, 62 weeks it shall be built again with squares and moat but in troubled times. So what exactly is he saying? Here's what he's saying in that passage. The first thing to start off these seven weeks is... Uh, a decree that goes out to rebuild Jerusalem. Uh, scholars are split on this. There's other options, but these are probably the two best options. One of them is Cyrus's decree that you see in 538. Uh, they, they, the people can go back to the land. The other one that's often used is the decree of Artaxerxes and Nehemiah, where Nehemiah was sent to go back and rebuild the, the walls. Neither one of them necessarily is completely wrong. And you'll see that The reason why is when you go into the next verse, it doesn't say that some of these events have to happen exactly after the other ones conclude. So those are the two best options. Here's what does have to happen. The people go back, and for 49 years, they get Jerusalem to a point where it's livable again. It says with the the word uh, 
squares and moat really just means like streets and a trench that can bring water in so the city is now livable again. doesn't have to be complete. It's just in a state where people can now return and live in it. And if you read the history of Israel, that was happening during all those times in that period. So easily fulfilled. The next period then, the 62 weeks it says, is where the city's back to a livable state. It's not complete, but it's livable now. But for the next 62 weeks or 434 years, it's in troubled times. Okay, that's, look at what he's saying here. He says, uh, print, uh, then for 62 weeks, it shall be built again, but with squares and moat, uh, with squares and moat, but in a troubled time. So what is it shall be built again? Well, the rule of English is when you have a pronoun, you go back to the last noun that it was referring to, and that's what it's talking about. Well, it is Jerusalem. So it's going to be built in the first 49 years, and then it, when it's built, is going to have troubled times for the next, uh, what is it, 42 weeks. Okay? With squares and moat, but in a troubled time. Read the history of Israel. Read it in the Old Testament. Read it in regular history. That's exactly what was true. Israel rarely ever had the control it wanted of its land during that period of history. They were constantly being battled with the Greeks and the Romans ruling that area, even into Jesus' time. That's exactly what they experienced. So uh, those things have been totally true. History proves it out. And that's the first verse in terms of how you put those two things together. Now look at verse 26. Really important you catch a very key word here. It says here, and after the 62 weeks, okay, so we had the seven weeks, and then we had the 62 weeks. It says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing, and the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood, and to the end there shall be war and desolations are decreed. So let's take these one at a time. A lot of things are happening here. The most important, though, is that first two words. It says, and after the 62 weeks. All this passage says is that after those seven weeks and the 62 weeks occur, these events are going to happen. It doesn't say immediately after. It says after them. Are you with me? That's what it says here. Okay, so let's take a look at that and see here how we do this. So Daniel 9.26 is represented on this chart by the dotted line because it's kind of a, an indefinite period of time that we're in this after period. It just says, hey, these things are going to happen after these two first sets of weeks or years come about. Okay, so that's Daniel 9.26. I've titled this the after period. So go to the next slide, please. And you'll see that uh, we're in the after period here, and all we're going to do is place these events that it talks about in verse 26 that have to take place in this after period. Okay, so follow with me uh, on your passage and just pick, take them one at a time. It says, after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off. Well, in the Hebrew, that term for anointed means Messiah. The Messiah was the term of, of uh, the Jews used for their for coming Messiah. That's who Jesus was. It says he's going to be cut off. He's going to be left with nothing. Well, the crucifixion happened in, in approximately A.D. 33. Uh, the birth of Jesus on this scale would be around s between 6 and 4 B.C. On the calendar is where that would land. So you can see that no matter where you put those two options, Jesus' death 
uh, came after that, he was cut off after that point happened. Based on those two scales, the two options that are out there, the first one is okay because it just says the anointed one has to come after that period. Well, Jesus' birth was after that. That's okay. Option two, those scholars would say if you take the decree of Artaxerxes, they would say that the anointed one come, came uh, when Jesus came into the city, into Jerusalem, in the triumphal entry, the week of his uh, his crucifixion. And if they, if you look at their dating process, they pretty much show that those years run you right up to his triumphal entry. So it's still before his crucifixion, which is what the passage says uh, would happen after those particular years. So either one of those works out in terms of accomplishing its goal. It just depends on how you want to date those things and, and what you believe should have happened right in that period. Okay, so after the 62 weeks, an anointed one shall be cut off and shall have nothing. And the people, this is an important passage, look very closely. And the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city and the sanctuary. Okay, here's a couple, a lot of things going on in here. First you have a, the people, not the prince. It says the people of this prince who is to come. What is that? Past, present, future. That's future, right? So they're saying the people of the prince who is to come, and we're going to see that prince talked about in a minute, will destroy the temple. It doesn't say the prince will. It doesn't even say the prince is there. It says this prince is a prince that's going to come, but his people, meaning the, the nationality of him, him, where he comes from, those people are going to be the ones that destroy the city and the temple after this t time period. Well, we see that in, in 70 A.D. You can go to your historical books where the destruction of the temple and the city of Jerusalem took place. So if you go to the next slide. Uh, sorry, we got the anointed one cut off down there at the bottom. That's the crucifixion. That fulfills that part. Then we have the destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. If you go to the next slide, please. Destruction of Jerusalem and the temple up at the top, 70 A.D. You can read about that in your history books. In fact, I pulled out a segment for you. Uh, describing it. This is Josephus, a historian who lived at that time period and wrote history. You can find this in a library. You can look it up on the internet. He's describing this event of when the city and the temple were destroyed. And here's how he describes it. He says, now as soon as the army had no more people to slay or to plunder, because there remained none to be the objects of their fury, Titus, who was the Roman general at that time, gave orders that they should now de demolish the entire city and temple. For all the rest of the wall surrounding Jerusalem, it was so thoroughly laid even with the ground by those that dug it up to the foundation that there was left nothing to make those that came hither believe Jerusalem had ever been inhabited. And truly, the very view itself was a melancholy thing. For those places which were adorned with trees and pleasant gardens were now become a desolate country every way, and its trees were all cut down. Nor could any foreigner that had formerly seen Judea and the most beautiful suburbs of the city and now saw it as a desert, but lament and mourn sadly at so great a change. That's the description of it. See what God said would happen? He said, the people of the prince who is to come, so the Roman people are the ones who destroyed it, shall destroy the city and the sanctuary, and its end shall come with a flood. 
That the term for flood was a common Hebrew phrase that was used for a military uh, excursion that basically just wiped a place out. You see that a lot used throughout the Old Testament. And that's exactly what Josephus was describing was true of Jerusalem and the temple. Completely destroyed. People destroyed. Temple destroyed. Walls destroyed. It was laid down. And it said, uh, also look what it says, it shall come with a flood, and to the end, meaning now to the very end, there shall be war. Desolations are decreed. Now, let's get focused again now. Who is the book of Daniel who are these things being written about? What people? Let me give you a hint. It starts with an I, ends with Israel. <laughs> Got it. Israel, right? It's, Daniel's calling out for his people. God's saying, I've cut this out for Jerusalem and your people, so the Israelites and the city of Jerusalem. And what he's saying here is that to the very end, there shall be war for the Jeru Israelite people, for this city. It's going to be characterized by war to the very end of all these decrees. Well, I put up here some of these things. Jerusalem uh, was reestablished by the UN in 1948. If you study historically the people of Israel, from the time that their temple and city was destroyed in 70 AD, they've been scattered all over the world. For two millennia, 2,000 years, they've been all over the place, not in their own land. And every war that's ever come up, they've been highly persecuted. World War I was horrible for them. Even though they fought in a lot of the, the nations that were involved in World War I, they were often persecuted and treated like they weren't really supporting those nations. And World War I just fueled that flame as it went into World War II. And Hitler kind of came on the scene. And we all know what happened in World War II. Even in those wars, they, the Jewish people were horribly treated, even though it wasn't even a war with their land. Then, after World War II, the United Nations and people just had a general compassion for them because of what they went through, and they reestablished the state of Israel in 1948, much to the demise of the people, the Muslim people primarily, and Arab people that lived in that area. And we all know what's happened since then. Just right there, historically, 1948, the moment they move in, wars began immediately. 1956, 1967, 1973. No other nation has had as many wars as they have. At times, there's been five different nations attacking Israel at one time. This teeny, tiny little piece of land. And even now, if you see the news at all, they are constantly in a state of alert. Man, that's exactly what Daniel wrote 3,000 years ago would be true when Gabriel revealed it to him. And then it says in verse 27, okay, so we've kind of finished that after period out uh, as we did that, verse 26. We put all those little pieces in. And then it says in verse 27, and he shall make a strong covenant. Now, we've got to pause right here. You might want to even make a note. Here's what I always do in my Bible. I circle those pronouns, and I say, oh, he. Who's he? Well, we've got to go back and find the last male figure that was referred to. And he's referred to in the middle of verse 26. It says, the people of the prince who is to come shall destroy the city. And then in verse 27, it says, and he, singular, so who does he refer to? This prince who is to come, so that's that gap period, because it was those people that destroyed it, it's a long period before this next part comes about. It says, and he, this prince who is to come, so I circle he, I draw a little line back to the prince 
who is to come, because that's who it is, shall make a strong covenant with many for one week. There's your final week. You have your seven weeks. You have your 62 weeks. That gives you 69. And the final week is this week that starts with this strong covenant. So if we go back to the chart here, then last week after those first two uh, sets of weeks we have there is the 70th week starts with a firm covenant. So if you put up the next slide, you'll see a strong covenant is what verse 27 says kicks off this last year. A lot of people are mistaken. A lot of Christians, and we aren't getting into this part of it and how the church fits into this after period because now we're kind of in an age of the church which is somewhat separated from Israel, even though not completely. It's just a different era. Some people think it's the rapture. Maybe you've heard about that. When the church is taken away, that starts that last difficult tribulational time. That's not what the Bible says. It's this covenant that kicks off that final week. And Daniel here tells us. And so it says, he will make a strong covenant with the many for one week. So who is this and who is the many? Here's maybe the best possible interpretation. The word many in Hebrew has two meanings. It can mean most typically many, a bunch, a whole lot, but it also has a, an abstract meaning that's common in the Hebrew as well, and the Hebrews use this a lot. They use a, a, a plural terms to talk about something having great importance, like the holy of holies. They pluralize it, or holy, holy, holy. The more numbers you have, the more significant it is. And so a term like this of saying many can also mean great multitude or it can just mean a great person. And it was a term that was also used to refer to governors or leaders or anointed rulers or things like that. And so what this probably means, this is our best interpretation, I think, is that this future prince who would come makes a covenant with the many. Okay, we're talking about Israel here. So the context would tell us it's probably many, the many's of Israel or the leadership of Israel, the Israelite people. He's going to make a covenant with them for one week, okay, to kick this off. And then it says, for half of the week, he shall put an end to sacrifice and offering. And that also helps us with the context because the term sacrifice and offering, whenever that's used in the Old Testament, a majority of times, it's a phrase or an idiom for Israelite worship. When they worship, they were to bring a sacrifice and an offering at the temple. Okay, so this guy, this prince, is going to make a, a covenant with the leadership of Israel, but then halfway through, it says, half of the week, halfway through the week or three and a half years, he's going to make an end of sacrifice and offering, or he's going to make an end to all Jewish worship. They won't be able to worship the way they want to three and a half years into this covenant. And it says, on the wing of abomination shall come one who makes desolate, until the decreed end is poured out on the desolator. Common sense what that means, right? It's a joke. Even translators still struggle with that. So I'm going to tell you what I think it means and what I think is the best possible explanation with some other verses. So here's, let's put our events in. Strong covenant kicks off that seven years. Three and a half years in or halfway in, it says, he's going to put an end to sacrifice and offering, and then this some kind of strange abomination is going to take place in that time period as well. So that last seven years is broken up into a, two periods, one in which this covenant seems to be going fine, and then halfway through, he puts an end to sacrifice and offering, uh, and then causes some kind of abomination all the way until the very end is poured out, which would be the second bodily coming of, of Christ there at the end, okay? So let's 
talk through this and see what this means. Let me give you another translation uh, that I think says it pretty well. The, the Lexham English translation translates this in this way. It says, and he, that prince who will come, will make a strong covenant with the many, or the leaders of Israel, for one week, which is a seven-year period. One seven they'll do it for. But in half of the week, which is half of seven, three and a half, he will let cease sacrifice and offering, and in its place, a desolating abomination. Okay, so some kind of abomination, which the, the term abomination in Hebrew is a term that's used for idol worship. It was the f- strongest form of offense to God was idol worship. That's what's typically called an abomination. So anytime something is set up that causes people to worship someone or something other than God, it was called an abomination in the Old Testament. Are you with me? So he's going to set up some kind of desolating abomination or idol worship, and it's going to happen until the determined, complete discretion is poured out on the desolator. So he's going to do that for that last three and a half years until God finally pours out on him uh, the, his final wrath and desolates him, even though he's been desolating through this abomination. So what does that mean? Let's look at some other passages to help understand that. Okay, these may or may not be in your notes, so jot them down. We'll read them. They'll come up on the screen. Let's get some understanding as to what he's talking about. Daniel chapter 7. Turn over just two chapters. Daniel had a vision about these Gentile nations and leaders that would come. And in, in this passage in verses 24 and 25, he's describing one of these final leaders that probably describes this prince who is to come right here with some of these events, and we'll see why. It says in verse 24, As for the ten horns, out of this kingdom ten kings shall arise, and another shall arise after them. So another king is going to come after these ten kings come, and he shall be different from the former ones and shall put down three of the kings. He shall speak words against the Most High, meaning God himself. He shall, sw- shall wear out the saints of the Most High, which is the Israelite people, and shall think to change the times and the law. And look what it says here. And they, meaning the times and the law, he'll be able to change things completely. They shall be given into his hand for a time, times, and half a time. Okay, listen real close to this. For a time, times, which is two, and half a time. Okay, now I'll get your thinking caps on. What does one plus two plus a half equal? Three and a half. Where have we seen that before? We see that in, in that period that we looked at before at the very end. So for three and a half years, he's going to be given the authority by God to, to make a huge change in how this world operates and the laws. And in a sense, throw out all of God's laws and all those principles that have been true of Jerusalem and rule that place in a totally different way. So there's one passage that points to that a little bit. Go to 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2. Thessalonians is a book that sounds like you're lisping when you say it. And so when you see it, you'll, you'll know you're in 2 Thess- Thessalonians, all right? I'm just saying. It's one of those tough tongue twisters. 2 Thessalonians chapter 2, verses 3 and 4. Listen to what Paul is saying and why we want to know these things as best we can. He says, let no one deceive you in any way. 
for that day, meaning the coming of the Lord, will not come unless the rebellion comes first. And the man of lawlessness, and if you look up what that word means, the lawlessness, it means one who, who throws out everything that God has said is how things should operate and sets up his own system. That's what that term, it's a very strong, rebellious term, describing someone that's willing to chunk out everything that God wants and set up his own process. Unless the man of lawlessness is revealed, the son of destruction who opposes and exalts himself against every so-called God or object of worship so that he takes his seat in the temple of God, proclaiming himself to be God. Wow. What does that sound like? One, it sounds like an abomination to the Jews, doesn't it? He's saying, you worship me, and where is he doing it? He's doing it in the very temple itself. And Paul's saying, and let, until this happens, the, do, the day of the Lord, the Lord's return, his bodily return is not going to happen until after that. So he's telling these people, don't be, don't be deceived by these wackos that go around and start saying, Jesus is coming here, or he's doing this, or he's doing that. And Paul's saying, people, you got to know God's plan enough to know that that ain't going to happen until these things take place. That's very important. Otherwise, you become very vulnerable to people who say, God told me this, or I had these visions, or they might even do miraculous signs like these guys are going to do. But if they're not consistent with God's word, then you dismiss them. Do not be deceived, Paul is saying. And Daniel was getting that same message to know these things and understand what they meant. 2 Thessalonians. The next one is Revelation 13. Turn to Revelation 13. And a lot is revealed in this passage. And I'm going to skip through some verses, mainly to give you context for who these uh, symbols or, or visions refer to, these beasts. Because the beast was just an image that John saw that refers to really some rulers that are going to come up and people in the end times uh, that are real people, but will exhibit these characteristics. And so John sees in verse thir- uh, 1 of chapter 13, he says, I saw a beast rising out of the sea, Uh, And the sea was often a place of the Gentiles and turmoil to the Jewish people. And so a a person rising up out of it, meaning this is a a beast that comes up out of the Gentile nations, okay, with ten horns and seven heads, with ten diadems on his horns and blasphemous names on his head. So that's this beast. He's coming up. And in verse 5 we see this. And the beast was given a mouth uttering haughty and blasphemous words. And it was allowed to exercise authority for 42 months. All right, let's just pause there for a minute. 42 months, 42 months, 42 months. See, if you did a little math, converted that into years, how long would that come out to be? Three and a half, three and a half years? No way. That's just got to be a quinky dink, right? Three and a half years. Okay, so this is probably that same guy. Three and a half years. 42 months, it opened its mouth to utter blasphemies against God, blaspheming his name and his dwelling, that is, those who dwell in heaven. And then in verse 11, we see this. Now look what's happening here. Then I saw another beast rising out of the earth. It had two horns like a lamb, and it spoke like a dragon. It exercises all the authority of the first beast in its presence. Okay, now, what many people would say about this is that first beast is the political leader, the Antichrist, that comes on the scene and and makes this covenant. The second beast that comes up is a religious leader. 
He's what's called often the false prophet. And this religious leader is the one that's organizing the religions to worship this political leader who's on the scene, okay? And it says that exactly what's going on. It says, look what it says he does. And he makes the earth and its inhabitants worship the first beast whose mortal wound was healed. It performs great signs, even making fire come down from heaven to earth in front of people. And by the signs that it is allowed to work in the presence of the beast, it deceives those who dwell on the earth, telling them to make an image for the beast. An image. That's kind of like idol worship, isn't it? An idol worship was an abomination. Very similar to what we talked about. Let's look at how he does this. Make an image for the beast that was wounded by the sword and yet lived, and it was allowed to give breath to the image of the beast so that the image of the beast might even speak and might cause those who would not worship the image of the beast to be slain. Okay, so let's go back to that final verse. He says, on the wing of abominations. The word for wing means a one on hand, a wing. It also means an overbearing influence, like a mother's wings over its doves. So you could translate that. There'll be an overbearing influence, a very strong influence, he says, of abomination, of idol worship. An extremely strong, overbearing influence of abominations shall come in that time. I would say that forcing people to worship an idol or they die is pretty strong. That's exactly what Daniel is talking about. That's what these passages allude to as we put these pieces together. So, so what? You say, Chad, what, you know, okay, great, neat chart. I'm going to hang it up on my wall. We'll frame it. Probably go in our living room when we go home, but, but big deal. You know, there's all kinds of charts. You can Google these things all over the place. What does this really mean for us today? I'm glad you asked that question because I was just about ready to answer it. Four simple things, real quick. God has a plan. He's got a plan. He's not making things up as we go, and he's not scrambling to figure something out along the way. He has got a plan, and he's revealed it to us in many different ways. Not every detail, but a lot. Second thing is that that plan has always played out in the past. I mean, just look at in this prophecy what's already happened to the T. People back then, Daniel struggled with it. The Israelites struggled with it. All the prophecies of Jesus they struggled with. They didn't believe God. And we looking back can see that every single thing he said would happen has happened. They failed to trust him. And they were wrong. So let me ask you something. What's going to be said about our generation? What's going to be said about you when it comes to believing God's prophecies? Are you going to dismiss them like they did, only to see them perfectly fulfilled? Or are you going to trust in them that just as he's been faithful to everyone until now, that he's going to continue to do that into the future? The last thing is this. Live now in light of what we know is coming in the future. You see, all of us are living in light of some future plan. We all do. You may reject 
this. And your plan is, you know what? I don't think there is a plan. We go to the grave and it's done. Boom. That's your plan. That's yours. That's fine. That's your plan. Others of you say, well, you know, yeah, yeah, whatever. But whatever the plan is, we can't know it, but we're all going to end up in the same spot anyways. Others of you think, you know, it really doesn't matter. Do whatever you want, and it's just the same for everyone. That's your plan. That's how you're living. And some of you are living according to what God's plan says is going to happen. And you're setting your present decisions based on that. I just want to challenge you this with this one thought. I, I've never, in my life, I've never seen any reasonable evidence provided to prove any of these other options. That nothing's going to happen or that everyone's going to the same place or it doesn't matter what you do, it all works out in the end. Those are plans, but where's the evidence for them? Give me one shred of evidence that that's what's going to happen. But you know what? When I opened up this book and when I began to see who God says he is and and see what he did in time and compare it with the history of our world and, and all these events, what I've seen is that every single thing he's ever said he was gonna do, he's done in the past. Everything he said about my heart and who I am as a person and what I need in my life, even when I've kicked against it, he's always proven it to be true. I don't know what your plan is. I don't know what you feel the future holds for you. But I want to challenge you today. If you don't have a plan or if you don't have any evidence for your plan, this is a great one. He's never been wrong. I believe he won't be wrong in the future either. So we need to know this. We need to understand it. Because without it, you will not live like Daniel lived in times of great uncertainty. My prayer is that we would be a church that understands a God who has a plan for his people. And whether it's a good season or a bad season, our hope would not be set on our circumstances at that moment. Our hope would be set on an eternity far overshadows any moment of time we will ever be on this earth. Let's pray. Father, thank you for these truths. Thank you that we who are so quick to forget can be reminded that you you have the big picture in mind. And Lord, we get all hung up on what's happening in our city and and what's happening in our schools and and who's going to take over the leadership of our nation. All important things. But God, you look so far beyond that. I mean, Daniel lived through multiple pagan, horrific nations leading and, and running the world. And yet he lived a life that was worthy to be written about that you loved him so much that you revealed these things to him. Lord, he never got to go back to his homeland. The last image he had of his hometown was probably seeing his mom and dad's blood be spilt 
by this foreign nation. But he lived like he was living for a kingdom that was yet to come. He lived with a confidence that he was going home one day. And that home was going to be greater than any home he'd ever experienced here on this earth. So Lord, we need more people like Daniel. We need to be a people who live beyond the times that we live in because of the time that we know is coming, because of the season and the prophecies and the truths that you assure us are going to happen. So Lord, help us see, help us understand so that we might live like your people ought to live. In Jesus' name we pray.